Bible, why don't you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I don't know if the PowerPoint's going to come up this week, so you're going to need your Bibles because we're going to look at them a lot. It's working. Is that right? Can we just turn me down slightly? Would that that'd be all right? That sounds... Oh, that's much... Yeah, that's much better. Thank you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's just recap from verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, that's his second coming, when he returns, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this doesn't include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for the scripture. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you would unpack the scriptures for us, that you would touch and transform our hearts, that we would leave this place more in love and with Jesus and more like Jesus than when we came in. Amen. Uh, so we've been looking at uh, different things over the last few weeks. We've been looking at how the gospel can be seen sort of through the lenses of five acts, through the narrative of the scripture. Uh, we talked about the story of creation, and then we talked about the fall, and then we talked about the story of Israel. Then we talked about the life and the, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and how that has unleashed new creation those five things. And last week we touched, among, uh, amongst other things, on what happens when we die and how, despite what many of us believe about, we've, a lot of us think about life as being like a two-step thing, a two-step process, you know, life followed by life after death. And when we say life after death, we're sort of thinking about some nebulous, out-of-body place that we might think of and we might even call heaven, sort of where we think that we're going to be living for eternity. And what we looked at was how that's actually not the teaching of the Scriptures. And that came as a bit of a surprise to many of us. I've had lots of conversations this week going, really? Like, who knew? And um, actually, the Scriptures, when you read the Scriptures, they, the Scriptures point towards like a three-step process, which is life, uh, life after death, followed by what N.T. Wright calls life after life after death, uh, what we might think of as the new creation. And all of that new creation, that, that life after life after death, is unleashed in and through the resurrection of Jesus. You see, the resurrection of Jesus sets into motion this whole chain of events that just can't be undone. It's this catalyst uh, moment. It unleashes this future age that the Bible in various places is signposting to and is pointing towards 
right throughout the scriptures, right from the very beginning, all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament. And the, the scriptures are referring and signposting and pointing to that future age in uh, many different ways. Isaiah speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, Jesus describes it as the renewal of all things. John calls it eternal life. Paul talks about it as, he describes it as the age to come. He sometimes talks about it as the kingdom of God. Peter calls it the time for God to restore everything. That's how the Bible talks about the future. Now, the Bible may not actually have very much to say about what happens when we die, uh, but on the other hand, the Bible has a lot to say about what happens um, after what we might think of as heaven. Okay? It has a lot to say about resurrection. What does that look like? Well, let's have a look at verse 23 um, in 1 Corinthians. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And Paul's using this sort of agricultural uh, image of the first fruits and the history and the tradition of um, Israel. The offering of the first fruits was to signify something much greater uh, yet to come. And see, here what's happening, Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first to rise from the dead, but that's not the end. It's not the end. The, the, the point of Jesus being described as the first fruits is that there will be many, many, many more. We talked about that last week. The early Christians believed that God was going to do for the whole cosmos what he'd done for Jesus at Easter. And the, the resurrection of Christ at Easter is a, is a signpost, is a pointer, is the beginning, is that catalytic event for what God plans to do for the whole uh, cosmos. It's this picture, it's a metaphor, it's a, a tangible demonstration of this stunning future age that the whole world, that all of us are aching and groaning and longing for. And then in verse 24, it says, and then the end will come. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that he's put everything under his feet, it's clear this doesn't include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him the Father, who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. And Paul here shifts his language. and He's saying, actually, uh, he's using a different image. It's not one so obviously directly connected to creation as the first fruits, but it's a biblical image nonetheless. And he's talking about the establishing of a kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom coming, the establishing of a kingdom, which will be established through subduing all possible enemies. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus won't hand over the kingdom. He won't hand over the kingdom to the Father until in its fullness, until every single power in the cosmos has been subjected to him, subjected to Jesus, apart from, obviously, God the Father. And, and what this is, really, is it's, um, it's funny language, and it's, it's, it's pretty opaque, and it's Paul at his finest trying to confuse us all. But this is really, when you dig into it, it's a clear articulation of the kingdom. He's talking about this new creation, this future age, this new heavens, these new, this new earth, when everything is subject to Christ. And in the end, at the end, 
every force, every authority in the whole cosmos. This is pretty massive. This is pretty mind-blowing. Every single thing will be subject to the Messiah. And finally, even death itself will relinquish its power. Every single thing imaginable, including death, is to be transformed by Jesus. And that's like pretty mind-blowing. That's pretty exciting. The gospel of Jesus is announcing that what God has done for Jesus at Easter, he will not only do for every single one of us who is uh, who's in Christ, he will do for the entire cosmos. It will be an act of new creation and it's reflective of and it's reflected by God raising Jesus from the dead. You know, that's why the resurrection matters so much. That's why we're talking about it. That's why Easter is our biggest celebration. We are the Easter people because of the resurrection. And, you know, rather than just merely saying that upon his death, uh, Jesus has begun some, uh, to exist in some new, uh, non-bodily away in the sky kind of form. Jesus has been bodily raised from the dead. And that's really important because if Jesus wasn't bodily raised from the dead, death hasn't been defeated. What would have happened is that death would have remained intact. It would have just been re-described, re-imagined. Does that make sense? So he has to be bodily raised from the dead in order for death to be defeated. And death is the last enemy. And we have to remember that death is not Um, part of God's good creation. Death was not part of God's original plan. The reason that we grieve, the reason that death prompts in us and elicits in us this visceral reaction, I believe is because not only is the loss of relationship and the sadness and all of those things that we feel, but it's because it's actually a righteous anger about something that was never part of the natural order of things. There's something that resonates within us that this is not right. Death is the ultimate injustice and therefore death must be defeated if the life-giving God is to be honored as the true God of the world. He has to conquer death. And when this happens then and only then, Jesus the Messiah, the Lord of the world, will hand over the kingdom to his Father and God, as it says in verse 28, will be all in all. That's this incredibly powerful, very small phrase. God will be all in all. And that phrase, God will be all in all. Everything in everything is one of the clearest statements of the very um, center of the future-oriented New Testament worldview. God will be all in all. That's what the kingdom looks like. That's what it looks like in all its fullness. And what this means is that until the final victory over evil, over particularly over death, happens, that moment hasn't arrived. So let's just imagine what it's like when that moment arrives. What will it look like? Well, in Isaiah chapter 11, anticipating some of the new creation passages of Isaiah 65, chapter 65 and 66, Isaiah the prophet, he's describing um, what it will be like. And he declares in in, in chapter 11, he says, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as, as the waters cover the sea. And this is all kind of opaque poetic language but we're like what does that even mean you know um how can the waters cover the sea i mean they are the sea the waters the sea is all i'm confused what does that look like and what it looks like is it's like the impression is that god is going to flood the universe with himself flood the universe with his presence as though the universe is the entire cosmos was designed to be this container this receptacle 
of his love and of his presence. So what might that look like if the whole universe is flooded with God's presence? Have a look at Isaiah chapter 65, starting in verse 17. You've got the text up there behind you. And basically God's saying like, you know, it's like God speaking in the first person. He's saying, um, behold, listen up, see, pay attention. What I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to do. This is what the future looks like. I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what, will I, what I will create. And you're kind of like, well, what are you going to create? It's like, well, he goes on in verse 18. He says, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice. This is all talking about this future age this eternity that we often sell short by thinking of heaven and clouds and angels and harps. It's like, no, 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 it's much bigger than that. It's much better than that. Listen, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. This is our future hope. This is what we've got to be looking forward to. God's recreating a place of joy and delight. There'll be no more weeping, no more crying, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more anxiety. All of that stuff is gone. And then he goes on in verse 20. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Praise God. Uh, an old man who doesn't live out his years. The one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach 100 will be considered a curse. And the point isn't here that we're going to die in the age to come. That's not what he's saying. The point here is that there will be no death. There will be no disease. There will be no heartbreak. There will be no stillborn children. There will be no miscarriages. There will be no pain. There will be no grief. This is our eternal hope. And he goes on in verse 21. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Not only are we going to get to live in houses in this renewed earth, we get to build them. You know, uh, we get to plant vineyards uh, and more, not just like churches, like actual like vineyard, vineyards. Like More importantly, after we get to plant them, we get to partake of their fruit. Uh, and that means wine to you and me, which is a good thing. That's an exciting future. It means we'll be gardening and we'll be eating and we'll be drinking and we'll be building. It's like, ah, that sounds like fun. That's awesome. Like, let's go. Uh, verse 23, no longer will they build houses and other people live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so, this, so will be the days of my people. This is all about injustice. There will be no more injustice in this place. My chosen ones, he goes on, will long enjoy the work of their hands. You see, the curse of work in, the, in Genesis 3 has been broken. We get to work in this new creation. We get to work, we get to labor in, in eternity, but this time, we all love what we do. Hey, hey. Verse 23, they will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I'll heal. Best of all, we get to be in God's presence. God in this place is near, very, very near. You open up your eyes and there he is. And it ends in verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox and, the, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is how the Bible is talking about the future. This is life after life after death that's waiting for all of us who follow Jesus. And, and none of it sounds like a non-bodily, up-in-the-sky, spiritual bliss, sitting on a cloud in a white robe, strumming a harp and singing Amazing Grace ad nauseam. You know, if, 
if this sounds like heaven on earth, that's because that's exactly what it is. It's heaven on earth. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation, last book of the Bible. Um, This is Revelation 21, verse 1. Uh, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Uh, Sea, um, in in this context, is is a reference to sort of injustice and um, uh, all the things that are wrong. It's not like there's no sea. And we can't go like windsurfing and kite surfing and surfing and swimming uh, in heaven. It's like there's no longer, no longer any injustice. Uh, there was no longer any sea. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And Revelation 21 here, this is, this is how the story of the Bible ends. And by ends, I don't mean like it's over. I mean, this is the climax. This is the pinnacle. Here's the goal that all of human history has been uh, building up to. Here in, in Revelation 21, John picks up some of that language that we saw from Isaiah's imagery. And he says, look at the opening line. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Again, we've got to be careful how we interpret the word new here because it really matters. Because this has influenced and our theology around this has shifted over the last hundred years or so. But the word new here is in, in Greek is better translated renewed. Uh, it's the exact same word that Paul uses when he's talking about if any person being in Christ, he is a new creation, a renewed creation. When we come to Christ, it's not like we're just like taking out the back and, and we're like, thrown on a bonfire, we are renewed. And what he's definitely not saying here, and again, this matters a lot because it's going to change the way that we carry ourselves and behave. Paul's not saying that God is going to scrap the heavens and the earth and start again. He's saying that God is going to renew the earth. Or in gospel language, God is going to redeem the heavens and the earth. Have a look at what it says in verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, Coming down out of heaven, wherever this place is where God rules and reigns. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. From God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And he sees the future like the wedding of, the hev- of, of heaven and earth. Heaven, that place. Remember where God's will is done. Where God is seated on the throne. Where God rules and God reigns. Heaven, that place, wherever it is. Coming down to earth. God's rule. God's reign. God's kingdom. All coming down from somewhere else and crashing into here, this place where we are, crashing into the earth and is united and is joined in exactly the same way that uh, a husband and a wife are joined at their, at their marriage and their wedding night. 
Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is our hope. We should read this every day. Like once a day when we get up in the morning. Read Revelation 21. This is our hope. This is our future. This is our salvation. This is our redemption. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. Because the old order of things, the old way of life, this way that we find ourselves in, this in-between, the now and the not yet, has passed away. It's gone. It is no more. That's our future. That's what our hearts long for. That's what we're hardwired for. And John goes on to talk about the new Jerusalem and he, he, he goes on to describe like the size of the city walls. He talks about the design of it all and, and the beauty of it all. Have a look down to verse 22 in uh, Revelation 21. Uh, he says, I didn't see a temple in the city. Why? I didn't, there doesn't need to be a temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its, on no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He goes on in chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, this, this is the new Eden. You know, the story of man. You know, it was God's original intention. And since the fall, God has been re- working redemption, redemption, redemption. To go back to his original plan, it wasn't a bad plan. It was an awesome plan. It just got messed up. And so God is trying to get back to that original plan. And so the story of mankind begins in a garden and it ends in a city. But it's a garden city. This is the future hope for all of us who follow Jesus. This is the fulfillment of the resurrection of Jesus. This is the hope of Easter. And let's not sell God short with dodgy theology about clouds and harps and white clouds. You know, can you build houses, you know, when you're playing a harp? I mean, it's not a fantastic tool for the trade. You know, can you plant vineyards if you're on a cloud? You know, the seeds, they just drop, they just drop, they just drop through, you know. And what happens when you get dirt on your robe? You know, you spill wine on your robe. It's not good. It's not, it's not white anymore. You know, can you, can you go cycling in white robes? I mean, can you, um, can you play rugby? Can you fly planes or helicopters? I, I mean, I had no idea what sort of things that you're going to be getting up to in this eternity. But it's much more 
real, it's much more tangible, it's much more physical, it's much more this kind of stuff than this airy-fairy, disembodied, sort of floating in a cloud stuff. None of those things, none of the things that God is calling us to in our future eternity, none of it happens in white robes. You know, white robes are beautiful for uh, beautiful clothing for life after death, but they're no good for life after life after death. They are no good for a life of eternity. Okay, so as I said last week, when you're thinking about life after life after death, when you're thinking about resurrection, when we're thinking about the new heavens and the new earth, imagine fresh air in your lungs, imagine dirt under your fingernails, imagine food on your tongue and a glass of fine wine in your hand. That's much more the imagination that we should have when we're thinking about our future hope. It's a city on earth. It's got walls and it's got streets and it's got buildings. It's got rivers. It's all full of trees and this incredible creative beauty. And all, most importantly, all of it is in God and God's presence is filling it. It's the new Eden. It's building and making and shaping and creating and co-laboring with God and with one another. It's, it's farming and it's gardening and it's painting and it's designing and it's pioneering and initiating and, and building and loving and all of those kind of things and more. It's, um, it's eating and drinking and being with friends and, and feasting and, and interacting well, getting on like doing relationships well. It's loving and relating and creating and singing and worshiping and and, 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 and all of it living in God's presence for eternity. Yeah, that really is, um, is the hope for our future. And we need to get a picture of that. We need, to, we need to carry eternity in our hearts because it changes the way that we do and mortal lives here because you know if you sit here and you think well that's great like i don't really understand a word you're saying but anyway i'll nod politely you know but what's any of this got to do with my life you know who cares what's any of that got to do with my life now well i would argue everything you know we said a couple of weeks ago that what we believe about the future is going to influence and shape and direct how we think about the present how we live in the present so what might any of this mean for us here and now Okay, Um, the final coming together of heaven and earth is, of course, God's supreme uh, act of new creation, for which the only real prototype, uh, other than the first creation itself, was the resurrection of Jesus. God alone will sum up all things in Christ Jesus. That's the point that the Gospels are all making in their own way, that Jesus is risen and therefore God's new order, God's new creation, God's new world, the new heavens, new, it's all underway. It's, 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 it's begun. Jesus is risen, therefore Israel and the world have been redeemed. Jesus is risen and therefore Jesus' followers have a new job to do. We have a new mandate. And what is our new job? What is our mandate? What is our calling? Well, our job, our mandate uh, as followers of Jesus is nothing less than to bring the life of heaven to birth in an actual, physical, tangible, earthly way. And to bring it to reality here on earth, here and now. That's, that's our job. It's to bring that future age into the present age, wherever we can. And so... What that means is that every act of love, every deed 
that we do in Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God. Every work of, I don't know, true creativity. Every time justice is done. Every time peace is made. Wherever families are healed. Wherever temptation is resisted. Each time that true freedom is sought and won. The future age breaks into the present age. Sometimes I think in the vineyard we are too limited about understanding the kingdom. I think sometimes our kingdom is too small because we think about signs and wonders, all of which is absolutely part of that future age. But it's so much more than signs and wonders. Healings and words of knowledge and prophecy and all those things, fantastic, absolutely. But it's so much more bringing the kingdom, being a people of the kingdom, being the kingdom of God carriers is so much more than all of that. It's that and, 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 and. Just as Jesus' resurrection implements and anticipates the final creation, so too these small demonstrations of the kingdom, they're signposts of hope. And, and each, every single one points back to Jesus and points forward to Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, uh, what we can and must be doing in the present is building that kingdom, seeing that kingdom established here on earth. Paul ends this whole chapter, uh, chapter 15, he ends the whole chapter like this. Um, therefore, this is verse 30, uh, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always, this is at the end of a chapter, which is all about resurrection. It's all about eschatology. It's all about the future hope. He says, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. As theologian N.T. Wright, he puts it like this. He says, look, and this is how theology has moved because the, the assumption in the past was that this is all going to burn, right? It's all just going to go up in a puff of smoke, so what's the point, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. That's dodgy theology. He says, he puts it like this. He says, you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to be driven off a cliff. He says, you are not restoring a painting that's about to be thrown into the fire, He says, you are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up and turned into a building site. You are, strange as it may seem, accomplishing something which will become in due course part of God's future world. What we are doing here matters there. Every act of love, every act of gratitude, every act of kindness, every work of art or every piece of music inspired by the love of God, inspired by our delight in the beauty of God's creation. Every minute we spend teaching, I don't know, like a severely handicapped child, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, um, and for that matter, um, one's fellow human creatures, just for Judy. Um, of course, every prayer, um, all spirit-led teaching, every deed which spreads the gospel, every act that builds up the church, everything that embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of that stuff and more will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation which God will one day make. It matters. 
what we do, how we are, how we conduct ourselves, how we carry ourselves as kingdom people, as Easter people here and now matters. It has eternal ramifications. That's the mission of God, and that's the mandate of God's people. God's recreation of his wonderful world, which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues. I don't understand it. Like It continues mysteriously and miraculously as God's people choose to live out and embody the risen Christ. And in the power of his Holy Spirit, it means that what we do in Christ and empowered by his Holy Spirit in this present age, will not be wasted. The rest of it will just be like straw. The rest, it just all gets burned up. But that stuff, that will last. It will last all the way into God's new world. And in fact, it will be enhanced there. God will do something like awesome to it. And he'll enhance it. He'll, he'll do something. I've got no idea what any of this means in, in, in practice. These are, all of this is just like they're signposts. They're pointing through the mist and the fog of this present age. Right? But they're pointing through. There's, there are signposts. And it's like, hey, look at that. Okay, what does that mean? So how? Okay, let's, let's follow that sign. Let's point towards this future age. I've got no idea how our work for justice or for the poor will reappear in that new world. I, I don't know. I don't know how the time that you give to food bank or the, the energy that you put into job club or serving on Vineyard Kids week in, week out or the money that you give to the local church or to anything. I don't know how that stuff will, will, will find its way into God's future hope. You know, I don't know how your kindness and your compassion for the last and the least and the lost I don't know how your love for your enemies or your choices to forgive those people who've hurt you or your faithfulness to, in serving someone in need. I've got no idea how all of that, what that will look like in God's eternal kingdom. But I know that it will show up there. I know that it matters. I know that it's important because that's what the Bible says. And so we need to be thinking like that. I know that God's new world of justice and joy, of hope for the whole earth, I know that that world was launched. It, was, it began at the resurrection of Jesus that first Easter Sunday. And I know that the call on our lives now as his followers is for us to live in him, in and by the power of his Holy Spirit, and to be... Um, new creation people here and now. Our job is to bring signs and symbols and, 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 and tangible demonstrations of that future age into this present age and to see the kingdom birthed um, on earth as it is in heaven. And to show a world what that future hope looks like. To show a world of hopelessness and despair and desperation and misery and say actually look look what god is doing this is what eternity looks like but this that taste of that can be ours here and now the resurrection of jesus in and through the power of the spirit means that we're called to bring real and tangible demonstrations of god's renewed creation to life even in the midst of this present age therefore my dear brothers and sisters stand firm 
Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And um, that's the mandate that we need. That's the mandate that we have for every um, work of justice, for every act of mercy, for every program of ecology and uh, every effort to reflect God's kingdom, God's image to uh, his creation. Uh, In the new creation, the ancient mandate that we were given, our ancestors were given to look after the garden, to tend the garden, is dramatically reaffirmed. It's redeemed. And what that means is that our job is to get to work, is to work in this present age, in this here and now, right now, today, this very day. And we are to labor and we're to stand firm and give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord in outworking these advanced signs of the eventual state of affairs when God is all in all, when his kingdom in all of its fullness comes, when his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, I'm winding up. This week, you've got some homework, right? Um, Because we love homework. There's a couple of things I'd like you to just do, all right, and to think about this week. There are elements of this where I think for some of us, it's sort of shifting some of our assumptions. You know, it's like, yeah, I think that's true. I think I believe that. I don't, I don't really know what I think about this. I've never actually read the Bible, so I have no idea. I hope what you're saying is true, which is why reading your Bible for yourselves is actually a really important thing. Okay, So you can spot all my heresies and then stone me. Um, so this week, but I think for some of us, it's a bit of a challenge. It's like, oh, I don't know. I, I think I believed... Um, that, yeah, I think that's true. I think I believed that we would probably spend eternity with God. But I think, I thought that that was probably a bit cloudy, a bit, a bit, a bit airy-fairy, a bit up in the sky, not really sitting on a cloud or playing a harp, but not far off it. Like I actually, when I think about my eternity, I, 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 I do think it is going to be like an endless church service. And I am slightly worried about going to heaven because I think I'm going to be really bored, if we're honest. If that's you, you need to read this again. Because <laughs> that's not it. So well, the first thing I'd like some of us to do, all of us to do, regardless of where you are, is just reflect on your theology of life after life after death with this by your side. Okay, I don't want you to just like, be digging out Plato, right, who's already got us into all the trouble that we're in. I want you to be thinking about your theology around life after life after death based on this book, yeah, not the Republic. Um, That's the first thing. And then the second thing is I want you to just reflect on in what ways are you bringing a taste of that future age into the present one? How in and through your life Whatever it is you do, whatever your job is, whatever your calling is, whatever, however, whatever you're doing day to day, how are you bringing, can you look and can you see tangible demonstrations of that future age being brought into this one? So think about in your workplace. Like how do you do your job? How, how do you work? How do you work with your colleagues? How are you interacting with your colleagues? What influence do you have to bring that future age into this present one. And um, think about um, at home. 
Think about your relationships uh, if you're married. Think about your relationship with your spouse. If you've got kids, think about how you are interacting with your kids. If you're single and living with a whole bunch of strange people in your flat or your house, how are you interacting in your relationships with them that are indicative of bringing and borrowing from that future age into the present how are you how are we as easter people as people of the resurrection how are we bringing the resurrection to bear in our daily lives okay and then you can all report back next week i'd like an essay from each of you three thousand three thousand words that'd be awesome i'd love to be able to do that that'd be so much fun i can't do that some of you would really love to write an essay. Some of you are like, really? Oh, great, I've got an essay to write. Some of you are like, I'm never writing an essay ever again. Why don't you stand?